Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41, the last verse that we read in our opening and our call to worship. And what I want to see is the fruit of Pentecost, and particularly the fruit of the Holy Spirit of the church. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? What does a church look like that has the Holy Spirit poured out on them? And we see that in this glimpse we get, this cameo, this picture, this snapshot Luke gives us of how the first church functioned immediately after the day of Pentecost. Follow along in your Bibles, if you would, starting in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, 120 disciples and these 3,000 new converts, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pause and pray before we continue. Father, we see this picture of a church. And what a beautiful picture this is. A picture that we long to see more fully here among us. So Father, help us to see how the Holy Spirit's presence in a church and how a church yielded to the Holy Spirit functions and thrives and displays Christ. God, more than anything, we we long for the ending of that, for, for you to be praised and for souls to be added to the church. Not simply to sit here, not simply to add to our church, but simply to add to the church to add to those who are saved. So, Father, help us as we come to your word. Spirit, would you work here among us, opening our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I asked the question before I read the text. Let me ask it again. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? Now, that could be a scary question, depending on who you ask that. And maybe you're scared of, of starting a sermon with that. But we know that as Christians, uh, we are those who have been filled with the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. We've mentioned it already, that when Jesus ascended to the Father, He promised that though He was leaving, He was leaving so that He could send the Spirit, which He says was a far better thing than Him being here. But He says, I'm leaving you for a time so that the Holy Spirit would be present with you forever. John 14, 16. So if we repented of our sins, we saw the ending of Peter's sermon, if we repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, the right response to that is to be baptized. And the response that's the response from us and the response from God is that He sends the Holy Spirit in response to our belief as a gift. But at the same time, we know that Paul tells us that as those who are, who are filled with the Spirit, we have the Spirit, we still have something to do in relation to the Spirit. We, we are to be continually filled with 
the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled. And that filled is a is an ongoing filling, a continual filling. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Which means that you can have the Spirit, but yet not be filled with the Spirit, not be yielded to the Spirit. The way I like to ask the question, if some, rephrase the question when someone asks, well, how much of the Spirit do we have? The, the question I like to ask is, the, the real question is, not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much of you the Holy Spirit has? How much of you do you put under the control of the Spirit? Do you, do you limit the Spirit's control in our lives? Do you block Him out of areas of your life and say, you can't go there? Or does He have complete control of your life? Are you fully yielded to the Spirit? But again, that brings a question that I began with. And what does it look like to be yielded to the Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? And what does it look like for a church to be filled with the Spirit? I was asked that question, a question along those lines the other day at, at a golf course. It was a really nice day, the first really nice day that we had in, in March. And I decided I was going to take advantage of this day and go golfing. The only problem was a lot of other people had that same idea. So I got there and I reserved my time. And, but I was there alone, so they paired me up with another, another fellow. And as we were driving up to the first tee, he asked the question that pastors sometimes really don't like to be asked. And the question, of course, is, so what do you do for a living? I said, oh boy. We have 18 holes stuck in this little cart. This could be a really awkward four hours. But fortunately, it, it, was, it was not an awkward four hours. It led to some great conversations, great conversations about God, about faith, and about church. And but, well, one of the questions he asked is, what does your church believe about the Holy Spirit? He had grown up in a, a charismatic church. And what he meant by that is, what, what do we believe about things like tongues and healings and, and prophecies and, and the miraculous gifts of the Spirit? And that's often what we limit our discussions to when it comes to uh, the Spirit's activity in the life of the church. Uh, miracles and supernatural experiences. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That's when we know the Spirit showed up. That's what a Spirit-filled church looks like. But is that what a Spirit-filled church looks like? Well, what does the Bible tell us and what does the Bible show us about how a Spirit-filled church looks like? Well, again, what better place to go than this snapshot we get immediately following the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And again, we, or not again, but we do see miracles in these verses. We see signs and wonders that are being done by the apostles, which would mean Peter and John and the rest of the disciples who had been with Jesus. But these are signs, and I think they are pointing us to an even greater miracle. A greater working of the Spirit that is not evident merely in the apostles, but is evident in the 3,000 new believers that were added to the church in a single day. And it's these things that I want to focus on this morning. In these verses, Luke points us to four evidences of the Spirit's work in the early church. Four signs that a church is yielded to and, and being continually filled with the Spirit. And the first is this, and that is that there is a love for God's Word. A love for God's Word. A Spirit-filled church is a church that loves God's Word. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost Again, 3,000 men and women come to faith in Jesus. And what is the very first thing that Luke says about this group of people, this group of new converts? 
The very first thing he says is that, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here is the first picture that Luke gives us of the church, and that is they are a group that is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Now what Luke actually says is that they were continually devoting themselves. The NASB, which is a more literal translation, they're not so worried about making it sound pleasant in our ears. They want to be literal, and they, they, they write it like this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word that Luke uses for devoted is put in the imperfect present tense, which means that it's something that is happening over and over and over again. They were continually, not just once, not just at conversion, but over and over again devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Luke highlights this fact in verse 46 when he says that every day they were meeting together in the temple courts. Every day they continued to meet together. And they met in the temple courts because we will see later, we would see later in Acts that that's where the apostles were teaching. And Solomon's colonnade in the, in the wing, in one of the wings of the temple courts. And they were there to hear the apostles teaching. This word devoted means to persevere in some activity. It refers to perseverance or persistence. J. Vernon McGee says that it means to be persistently obstinate. They persisted obstinately in these things. Now, do you know, I know you don't have to point and don't have to elbow anybody, but do you know anybody who is persistently obstinate about something? They're obsessed about it. They, they can't get enough about it. They can't stop telling you about it. Every conversation somehow comes around to it. Every interaction is an opportunity for them to tell you more about this. You see them coming, you just think, oh no, here we go again. My boys right now are persistently obstinate about baseball. They're obsessed with baseball. They're eaten up with it. As soon as they come home from school, as, I, as soon as I come home for work, they want to know, hey dad, can, can we go play catch? Or dad, can I, can I practice my pitching with you? The, the other day I was saying, man, my upper back just really hurts and I could not figure out what in the world I was doing wrong or what, what had happened. And then Noah comes in the door and he says, hey dad, can, can we play catch? And I realized that's the problem. I've been playing a lot of catch and I've been throwing the ball a lot and their persistent obstinance has led to me having a pain in my back. But the disciples were persistently obstinate about being under the disciples or the apostles' teaching. They, they never missed a day of it. Wherever and whenever they were there. The word that Luke uses for teaching is actually the word didache. And it's a word that is often translated as doctrine. In fact, that's what the King James Version says. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, if there's anything the modern church thinks that is further away from being spirit-filled, it's being doctrine-obsessed. And and we know there are ways that we can be doctrine-obsessed in a way that is unhealthy. But we see in these verses that being filled with the Spirit leads you not away from doctrine, not away from truth, but instead it does the complete opposite. It leads you into it. This shouldn't surprise us because Jesus told us that this is what would happen when the Spirit's, Spirit would come. In fact, He called the Holy Spirit what? He called Him the Spirit of truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, you, comes He will guide you into all truth. 
He will not lead you into all emotions. He will not lead you into, into a wishy-washiness. He will lead you into truth. John 17, 7, John, or Jesus goes on to say that this is where truth is found. Sanctify them in your truth. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. He sanctifies us in the truth. Your word is truth. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit's presence shows up in our lives is that we have a hunger for the truth of God's word. And again, remember who is doing this hungering. It's 3,000 new converts. Now imagine how the disciples must have felt when they showed up that first day after Pentecost in the, in the temple and, and, and 3,000 students show up. John Stott said the Holy Spirit showed up and he, he started in elementary school. The only problem is 3,000 kindergartners showed up for class the first day. All of our elementary teachers who are trying to get to the end of year just kind of developed a twitch at that idea. 3,000 new students show up. But notice, these students are not here merely for recess or, or merely for lunch play or, or merely see school as a time to hang out with their friends, but they are there for the teaching. Give us more teaching. We want more teaching. They wanted more Bible. This is the evidence of a Spirit's work in the life of a church. Not, not less Bible, but, but more. Not less teaching, but more. Not shallower preaching, but deeper. When the Spirit is present, there is a hunger for more of God's Word. And let me just say, this is not me trying to make sure I have job security. Because I know that I have the privilege and the responsibility of being the preacher and doing the preaching. But this is a reminder that my role only finds significance in the fact that God's Word needs to be proclaimed and declared. You did not hire me as a CEO. You did not hire me as an entertainer. You did not hire me as an events coordinator. I have you, you, you hired me so that I can devote my time to studying and preaching the Word of God. And when I depart from that, my role here is done. And you need to make sure that my role here is done. When the Spirit is present in a church, there is a hunger for more of God's Word. Spirit-filled and devoted to God's Word go hand in hand. Notice, I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but notice what Paul writes in two different places. We read part of this verse earlier, but Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, through 20. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could have gone to this passage as a passage that, that shows the, what it looks like for a church to be spirit filled. But notice what Paul says in Colossians 3, 16. These are supposed to be on the same screen here, here they're on the same screen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But notice what he says when that happens. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The same effect of a, of a spirit-filled church and a, a church that where the Word dwells richly. The same effect is produced. And in Colossians 3, this is a plural. This, is, this you is plural. It's a y'all. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Dwell in y'all. In the gathered church. This is what the gathered church should look like. A place where the Word of Christ dwells. If you go to our website on the 
front page, I think it is, there's a quote, and I just love this quote by H.B. Charles Jr. And he says, It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. And I could add on to that, to the glory of God. And that's on our front page because that is our purpose. That is my goal for this church. That the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to make us, the children of God, look more and more like the Son of God. The Word of God is the Spirit's tool for building and strengthening and shaping the church. Second characteristic of a Spirit-filled church is a Spirit-filled church is a church that loves God's people. They love God's Word and they love God's people. Luke says not only were they continually devoted to the Word, but they were continually devoted to the fellowship. This same description there should be some dots in there because there's some words missing. But the same description of and they devoted themselves to follows or applies to each of the four acts that follow in, in Acts 2.42. The second thing that they devoted themselves to was the fellowship. The word here is koinonia. Koinonia. And it's a word that does not appear in our Bibles until here. I, I'm familiar with that word. You're probably familiar with that word. Even if you don't know Greek, I don't know Greek. But I never realized this point. This is the first place where the word koinonia is used. After the day of Pentecost. And that's because it's only after the Holy Spirit has been poured out where this kind of fellowship is not only possible, but exists. Because it only exists when the Holy Spirit is active and present in a group of believers. And this means that fellowship means simply more than two fellows who happen to be in the same ship. This, this means more than, than, than a fellowship hour of coffee and donuts before church. This means more than the fellowship meal we're going to have. We can have all of those things. We can sit around this table and have a fellowship meal, but not really have fellowship. Because fellowship means more than simply being together, but it means sharing a life together. It's, it's only used in two places in the Bible. And that is to describe the relationship of believers in a church and to describe the relationship of a husband and a wife in a marriage. That is the intimacy, the, the, the level of relationship that is used and meant by this word koinonia. For is the something that is shared. The first thing we must think of when we think of koinonia and what is shared because of the Holy Spirit being poured out is that we have koinonia, we have fellowship with God. John writes in 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our lives, we have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. We are united to God. We are, we are in Christ. We have koinonia with God. What an incredible thing that is. But notice what John says before this. He doesn't just use koinonia there, but he uses it before that. He says, if you have koinonia with God, this means that you have koinonia with us. You can't have fellowship with God and not have fellowship with fellow believers. I would also say you can't have fellowship with fellow believers if you don't have fellowship with God. The Holy Spirit brings us into relationship with God, but He also brings us into relationship with all those who have that same relationship with God. And I love that the ESV puts the article in front of 
the word fellowship. Puts the the in front of that. I know the NIV does not. But the ESV and other translations do. And I love this because it means that they were not simply devoted to the idea of fellowship. But they were devoted to a particular fellowship. They were devoted to to these people. They were committed to these apostles and these converts. Some people say they love the church, but they, they never actually plug in and connect with a church. They just love the idea of church. But Luke says the, the, the Spirit produces a love not merely for the idea of church, but a love for an actual church. Now, this is the only church at the time. They, they, they couldn't go church hopping because there was no church to hop to. But they loved this church. And they loved the people of this church. So much so that Luke says this about the way they display their fellowship in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any, as any had need. Now John Stott in his commentary on this passage, he puts as the first thing he writes about this verse. This is a disturbing verse. And it is kind of a disturbing verse if you read it. It disturbs us. It bothers us. Maybe we should read this verse when we pray for a revival of the Holy Spirit in our church. Are you sure that you really want it? Are you, are you ready for the cost that comes with a radical move of the Spirit in the life of a church? Are you ready to spend more time with your fellow believers? Are you, are you ready to be hungering and longing for more of God's Word and to sit under more of the teaching of God's Word? Are, are you ready to make costly sacrifices in order to provide for the needs of fellow believers? Often we say we want revival, but when it comes down to it, we really, we really don't. We're comfortable with the status quo. Now we need to hear what we're, and understand what we're reading in these verses. This is not a biblical command to communism or socialism. In fact, this is not a command at all. In the Bible, and particularly in in Acts and the Gospels and narrative passages, we need to be able to decipher the difference between prescriptive and descriptive passages. We need to know when something is being prescribed as something that should happen and continue to happen, and, and know when something is merely being described as something that did happen. And here I believe we have something described. When the fellowship that was shared among the believers, it was so deep, that it led them to sell their possessions, which usually refers to real estate or properties, and to sell their belongings because someone else in their fellowship had a need. You know, I have to think about all those countries we mentioned in in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning. Many of them, I, I think they were selling land back home because they didn't want to leave Jerusalem. We're not going back. So I'm selling the land and I'm I'm going to use the money I get from it to help my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I don't know if that's the case or not. But we see that this fellowship was so deep that when someone on the other side of the church suffered, they felt it. They said, I'm going to do something about meeting that need. Again, we know this is not communism or not not, not something that was commanded because we see later on in verse 46 that some of them had homes to meet in. Not everyone was selling their homes. A few chapters Later in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land and they come to the church and they say, this was all our money when it really wasn't. What did Peter say to them? They said, you were under no obligation to sell. 
You, you didn't have to give us all the money. This was not something that was commanded, but it was a spirit-produced reaction to the needs of those around them. However, while the selling of homes and possessions is voluntary, the command to be generous is not. And particularly the command to be generous to those who are in need. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, I know that in your church there are those who are rich. In this present age, in this world, they're, they're, they're rich, they're wealthy, they have a lot. Here's what you t- tell them. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and to sh- ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now in world history and in global, the current global situation, all of us in this room fall into the category of rich in this present age. We aren't commanded to sell all our stuff. We aren't commanded to feel guilty about that. But we are commanded to leverage the things that God has placed in our hands for the greatest good and for His great glory and for the good of our fellow believers. We're commanded to be generous. And the Holy Spirit causes this generosity to well up within us. The church is described as a body. And Paul writes that when one of one part of the body is suffering, the rest of the body feels it. Like when I walk into my boy's bedroom in my bare feet and I put my foot on a Lego block. Only my foot feels it, but my entire body reacts in that moment. When one member of the church suffers, the whole body reacts to the suffering and does what they can to meet that need. Again, this is the evidence of the Spirit's work in the midst of a church. In fact, John says that the lack of this taking place is evidence of the lack of the, of the presence of the Spirit. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And that's another one of those verses that should disturb us, should bother us. How can we hold on to our world's goods when we see our brother and sister in need. It's evidence that God's love, which is produced by God's Spirit, is not as present in our lives as it should be. A few years down the road from our account in Acts 2 in church history, the historian Titorian tells us that Rome began to get suspicious of these Christians. You can imagine 3,000 group and it keeps growing and growing and growing and acts and they begin to say what in the world is going on with these Christians so they sent spies to infiltrate their gatherings and the, skies, the spies came back and they reported they said these Christians they are a strange kind of folk they have no idols in their gathering no object to center their worship on but instead they worship one called Jesus who actually isn't even there but then they said this according to Torian how these Christians love each other. How they have fellowship with one another. Don't you want that to be said? If, if spies infiltrated this church and they, they came back and reported, man, how they love each other. Now, notice what they said first. They said they're worshiping not an idol. They're not worshiping their gatherings. They're worshiping someone who isn't there. The way for us to have fellowship is not just to really try, try really hard to like each other. 
The only way for us to have fellowship is if all of us are looking and worshiping and loving Jesus. You ever heard the illustration of trying to tune two pianos? It's impossible. I've never tried, but I'm, I'm trusting this person. Is it possible to tune two pianos by tuning one to the other? But the way to tune two pianos is to take a tuning fork, to take something that sounds a true tone, and to tune both of those pianos to each other. And as they are tuned or to that tuning fork, and as they are tuned to that true tone, they in fact are tuned to one another. And that's the way we have this fellowship, not by just loving each other, trying really hard to muster up some love, but by loving Jesus and drawing closer and closer to Jesus. And as we do that, we would draw closer and closer to each other. It's the way it happens in our marriages. If you want to love your spouse better, love Jesus deeper. If you want to love your children more, love Jesus deeper. And He will produce in you a love for others. Second evidence is that we love God's people. Third evidence of a Spirit-filled church is that it lives to worship God. It lives to worship God. Luke said they devoted themselves to the teaching, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and then we're going to take these two together. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Again, there's an article in front of this telling us that there's a specific breaking of bread in a specific prayer that they are devoting themselves to. Most likely the breaking of bread is referring to the Lord's Supper or communion. That's kind of interesting. They are, Jesus has just left, but they are already doing this in remembrance of Him so they don't forget Him. Already. Jesus commanded it and they're doing it. And the prayers probably refer to the set times of prayers that the Jews observed at the temple. And in verse 1 of Luke 3, or Acts 3, just a verse after ours, we see Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. There were three hours of prayer and they were at the temple on the ninth hour, they still observed the formal acts of worship. And that's what we see in this. We see that the church the church had formal worship and they had informal worship. They, they devoted themselves to prayer in the temple and then that spilled over into worship in their homes. Again, they were there at the temple for set times of prayer. And this is important for us to see because sometimes we think that a, a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled life, it will lead us away from formal worship. It will lead us away from formal gatherings. It will lead us away from formal acts of, of, of worship. But we see the complete opposite. Instead, it gave new life to the formal worship. They still absorbed, uh, observed the formal times of worship, just like we observe formal times of worship here on Sundays and Sunday school and in our church services here as we're gathered together on, on Wednesdays in our prayer meetings and in other scheduled worship services. These things are good. These things are even necessary. And we should block off times on our calendar for worship. Right on your calendar. This hour is for worship. Even individually, we should set times to pray and to read the Bible. We should schedule these things. Now some think that makes worship cold and, and, and lifeless and simply a duty. But these are the very means, the very avenues that God has promised to bless. And the very things that He has told us that this is how and He has given us so that we might be filled with the Spirit. 
was reading a book by, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson. He was talking about a man who was always at prayer meeting. He was a regular. And they were talking about this. And the man said, you know, sometimes I just want to stay home. Sometimes I, I, I go to prayer meeting and I go in a sense kicking and screaming. But I still go. And Sinclair says, I bet you never leave with that same attitude. And, and meaning that though sometimes we might not want to go to a church service, when we go, even in, in a sense, go, even if we go kicking and screaming, I believe you will find that you are always glad that you went. And that's because we have placed ourselves in the very place where God has promised to pour out His Spirit. If you wait until, if you wait to pray until you feel like it, or if you wait to read your Bible until you feel like it, or you wait to go to church until you feel like it, what you will find is that you often just don't feel like it. And the less we do those things, the more you will not feel like it. We don't feel like going to church one Sunday, so we don't. And then the next week we wake up and we realize, well, it's kind of nice sleeping in. So maybe some of you experienced that during COVID. I, I, I recorded my sermons on Saturday, uploaded them, and it was kind of nice having a relaxing Sunday morning. But you begin to be- develop a habit. And you begin to find out what you can accomplish a whole lot more with an extra day on the weekends. Our feelings cannot be in the driver's seat when it comes to our worship. They should be a part of our worship. We see, we see emotion and feelings in these verses. There's emotion involved in worship. But our emotions cannot be the deciding factor of our worship. The way I like to put it is that sometimes we have to tell ourselves how to feel. Sometimes we have to tell our emotions how they have to feel. I wake up in the morning and I say, you know, I really don't feel like reading my Bible this morning. I have to tell myself, self, you are, a, you are like a deer who is panning for water. And the only place to find the water you need is in God's Word. If I wake up and I say, I can't say this often because I usually have to do something when I'm here. But if I would wake up and say, I don't feel like going to church this morning. I have to tell myself, Hebrews tells us not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. And Jesus tells us that, there, that where two or three are gathered in His name, He is there in our midst. And you need to be with Him. You need to get to church. You need to have formal times of worship. But notice in these verses that formal times of worship spilled over and overflowed into informal times of worship. They gathered in the temple day by day, and then they went back in their homes. And in their homes they were breaking bread together and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts praising God. Worship in the temple spilled over into worship in their homes. And what I think you will find is if you set times of worship, just take for example, if you set your alarm and you say, I'm going to pray at 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. And you set your alarm for those times and you say, I'm going to pray them. It's going to feel cold, perhaps, because you're, you're making yourself pray. I bet that you will find that you will find yourself praying more between those times of prayer than you normally would. If you schedule times of worship, you will find those, that worship overflows into the rest of your life. And then finally this. The last thing we see, a, a spirit-filled church is a church that is a, that whose life is a witness. A spirit-filled church is a church whose life is a witness. Now I don't simply mean that they were an evangelizing church, though they certainly were. But what I mean is that their life itself, the, the presence of the Spirit in the church, it was itself a witness. Was itself proclaiming good news. 
Now, I do not like the statement by St. Francis of Assisi, and I don't even know if it's attributed to him, but preach the gospel wherever you go, and if necessary, use words. That is a caveat to not witness. That, that is an excuse not to witness. You cannot preach the gospel without using words because the gospel is good news. People might be led to Jesus through your actions, but they have got to hear the name of Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call upon it unless they hear? However, our actions should be a witness and should lead to evangelism. And notice what Luke says about the early church. Verse 43, he says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word all means holy fear or reverence. And as those both outside the church and within the church viewed the spirit-filled life of the church, they viewed their devotion to teaching, they, they viewed the, the fellowship and worship. They showed up at the temple one day and all of a sudden they saw the 3,000 plus people gathered in the wing experiencing something they hadn't experienced. There was a sense of awe. What is going on? I like what F.F. Bruce says about this. and He piggybacks on Peter's on the response to Peter's sermon. Remember, there was, a, there was a terror that fell on the people in response to Peter's sermon. He said, what shall we do? And Bruce says this, the conviction of sin that followed Peter's preaching was no momentary panic, but filled the people with a lasting sense of awe. God was at work among them. There was a lasting sense of awe. God was at work. So much so that they wanted to be a part of it. Verse 47 says they, the, the church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This devotion was contagious. Now it won't take us long if we were keep reading in Acts to see that all the people really isn't all the people, right? Because the Jewish leaders began to... They, they, weren't, they weren't thinking favorably of them. Instead they hated them and they tried to kill them and they did kill them and they persecuted the early church. But even that is an evidence of the church's witness. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, we are a fragrance from life to life. We give off an aroma of Christ. And that aroma hits the nostrils of people in two different ways. For those who are headed on the path of destruction, it, it causes them to run from us and hate us. But to those who are headed on the path of life, those who are, who are wondering about God and are wondering about faith, our fragrance is one of life. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer, of course, is none of us. That is why we need the Spirit. I want to emphasize this last line before we close. And then share a story or an illustration. But notice what the Lord said, or notice what Luke says. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice both of those aspects. The Lord did not add to their number those who were not saved. Neither did he save those who were not added. 
Salvation and belonging to a church go hand in hand. Simply being at a church is not a sign that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You must be saved. You must repent and believe and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you are saved, you are called to be a part of the church. You are called to be in fellowship and relationship with brothers and sisters. We need each other. I need you. You need your fellow brothers and sisters. Those who are being saved. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. He saved and He added. He added and He saved. They went together hand in hand. These are the signs of a Spirit-filled church. It's a church that loves God's Word. A church that loves God's people. A church that lives for worship. Lives lives of worship in a church whose life is a witness. And you read these things and and you know, if you look out on the broad evangelical landscape, that these are some of the very things that many in church leadership are trying to get away from. In order to win the world, we need less Bible. Who wants to listen to 40 minute, a 40-minute talk on an outdated ancient book? In order to win the world, we, we need less fellowship and pulling away from the world. In order to to win the world, we need shorter worship worship and less formal worship. In order to win the world, we don't want our lives to be a witness of something different, but we want to be relevant and to fit in. That's the way to win the world. Unfortunately, what we've seen, that that is not how to win the world, but how to become like the world. And when a church becomes like the world, they have nothing to win the world to. But the world is longing for something different. John Stott was traveling in Argentina and he came across a group of young men who were looking for a church. And they said they had visited all the churches in their area, but they, they just couldn't find one that suited them. And Stott, as we were, we probably would be, he was ready to reprimand them and say, well, maybe the problem in the church, maybe the problem is you. But he asked them, which, just out of curiosity, what is it that you're looking for in a church? And without knowing it, Stott says, they listed off the very characteristics found here at the end of Acts 2. Stott writes in a 1981 edition of Christianity Today. They said they wanted a church where the pastor faithfully expounded the Bible and related it to where they lived. They said they wanted a church where where there was warm, loving, caring, supporting fellowship. They wanted a church that had a sense of the living God and His greatness and worship. And they wanted a church that had compassionate outreach. But they couldn't find it. Sadly, this is true not only in Argentina, but in many locations around the world. But this is the kind of church that God blesses. He has given us the template. And this is the kind of church the world is hungering for. So let us, by the power and the presence and the filling of the Spirit, be that church. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much that You have not left things for us to guess. You have not left things ambiguous for us. But you have showed us what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled and Spirit-led church. And Father, in saying that, we recognize that these aren't things that we can simply do, but these are things that we are dependent upon your Spirit to do in us. And that we need to yield ourselves to your Spirit's work in our lives. So Father, may we do that. May we put to death the things of the flesh that fight against the things of the Spirit. May we put an end to the, to the ways of living for this world and living for the things of this world. And Father, may we yield ourselves to your Spirit and his work in our lives. We thank you so much for this and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, Gary, do you have announcements for Fellowship Meal or Donna or anybody about how to? Well, we're just going to, you know, if you'd like to help, please help move chairs out of the way to the 